Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We are in week four of our series called Character Sketch, and this week we are led by our senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Jared Ott, who will be preaching on the obedience of Gideon. Before we get to this week's message, we wanted to give you a quick reminder that all of the details regarding our Holy Week services, that's Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and our Easter services, are available online at ccgf.org slash Easter. Now, here is Pastor Jared with this week's message. Thank you for listening. My name is Jared. Uh, I want to pray for us before we begin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Thank you for uh, all the great things happening here at Christ Church, the missions and ministries that are going on as we prepare for Easter, that exciting time. Lord, we thank you. I pray that you do impress upon us those that need to be here. Lord, thank you for your word. You speak to us in your word, even through the Old Testament, through the lives of these, these people, these real people that you called ordinary people with extraordinary purpose. So, Lord, I pray that you speak through me now. I pray that my lips are your lips, my heart is your heart. And you press upon us the message you want us to hear. And, Lord, that we aren't just hearers of this word, but we'll be doers of it as well. And I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, church, we're in this uh, study uh, character sketch. And it hit me, um, I don't know, a week or so ago. Pastor Jamie was here talking uh, about Rahab last week. We talked about you following along with us and reading in your, in your Bibles. And I, you know, I realized, too, that you know, some people don't even know how to navigate the Old Testament. So if you pull out your service sheet, there's a, uh, uh, I made an Old Testament timeline for you. You may be asking, did you really get 4,000 years of uh, history into a half sheet of paper? We did. You're welcome. So uh, this is the Old Testament timeline. The reason I thought we'd go through this before we talk about Gideon is because we're going to start talking about some of the judges here. And some people don't even know, have any idea how to read along. If we say, hey, read along with us, follow along with us in your scripture. Some people know this. Some of you will look at this and go, yeah, I already know this already. Some of you are Bible scholars. Some of you go, I have absolutely no idea uh, even what a judge actually is. And so what we thought I'd do is kind of help you na- uh, navigate a little bit where we are in the scriptures as we continue in this character sketch. You could really be in a character sketch probably for like 10 years if you picked all the characters out in the Old Testament. So we're only going to be in it for a number of weeks here. But you see right there you have a creation in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve. Genesis 5 is Noah. And so that's what we talked about Noah um, a couple weeks ago when we first got started. Um, Right there uh, you have the call of Abraham. Many people don't realize that Job actually lived right around that time. Um, It's hard to kind of pinpoint it, but it's right around the um, year 2000 B.C. And then you have a period of the patriarchs. So that's Abraham, that's Isaac, that's Jacob. And then all of their sons, and then they form the 12 tribes of Israel there. And then they go into captivity. They go into Egyptian captivity. And then there's the call of Moses. And Moses, if you remember the story of the Moses, the burning bush, God says, uh, you're going to take my people out of captivity and you're going to go into the exodus, into the wilderness. And so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the story of the exodus. A lot of people say they want to read the Bible in a year. They get to Leviticus. They realize there's a bunch of laws and they give up. But uh, that's why, because it's the story, it's the narrative story of uh, going um, through the wilderness of Moses and uh, the 12 tribes. Then you have the entrance into uh, Canaan. Then there's the conquest. Remember Joshua. Joshua was the one who was going to lead the people into the promised land uh, because Moses and the people were being sinful. So Joshua and Caleb were the ones that were going to lead them into that land. And that's what John Guest talked about a few weeks ago, the, the courage of Joshua and the conquest. Jacob uh, Jamie last week talked about Rahab and how they helped Joshua and Caleb escape. And so there's the whole conquest, okay? Then there's the conquest is completed. Now they're in the promised land, and they're in the promised land.
land, and now they need some leaders. And we're going to talk about this in a moment, but then they, they get judges. There's a number of period of judges. Judges um, go through that time period there. It ends with the last judge, which is uh, Samuel. Samuel then goes and anoints the first king. They finally say, hey, we need a king of Israel. So they anoint Saul, and then David, then Solomon. And then you know, there's all the sons of uh, Solomon, and, and all that transpires. Samuel anoints Saul in 1 Kings 8. That's why it's the period of the kings. So then you have 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, and then you have um, all these, um, uh, these, these kings. Some are good, some are bad. And they divide the kingdoms north and south. Okay, Then uh, you have uh, all these prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. They're all saying, they're all prophesying the fall of these kingdoms. Okay, The fall of the northern kingdom goes first. Judah remains. And then a number of years later, then there's the fall of the southern kingdoms. Then there's the Babylonian exile. Because the Babylonians were the ones that conquered the south. You have Daniel coming back. That's the story of Daniel there. Then there's the restoration of the land. Ezra, Nehemiah, they come back and they rebuild the walls. And then you have Esther, uh, who we're going to talk about later. And then some um, uh, post-exile prophets until the end of the Old Testament. So there you go, your Old Testament history in two minutes. Uh, Some of you are going to walk out of here and go, I have no idea what you just said. And uh, that's okay. One of the things I want you to do is take this with you so you understand where the books fall. Okay, Some books talk about specific narratives. Some are talking about specific people, like Ruth and Esther. Um, some are um, talking about prophecies. Some are uh, the writings of David and Solomon and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That's the flow of the Old Testament. Now, you can say the Old Testament, many people have. I went through a number of years in uh, college and seminary talking about the Old Testament. But you need to understand where we are because we're going to start talking a lot about these judges here. Again, you could be in an Old Testament character sketch. Pastor Jamie and I, were, we were talking about this series. We, we literally could have been 10 years. And we had so many names coming up of people that we could have talked about. We chose some people that God used for a specific time and place that he used ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. But what happens... When you go to the period of the judges, that first timeline, what was happening is now that they're in there, they're in, um, they're in Israel, there's a period of judges, okay, and there's 14 of them. Othnel, Ehud, Shamgad, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jr., Jephthah, Ibsen, Elon, Abdom, Samson, Eli, Samuel, Samuel, and Saul. And you know the story, you've heard, maybe heard or are familiar with the story of Samson. Many of you know that story of the guy who's super strong. God gives him extraordinary strength. So you know the story of Samson. We're going to talk about Samuel. We're going to talk about Deborah next week. We're going to talk about Gideon. Some of these judges, just so you know, there's only one or two verses on them. Okay? Some of them, there's a whole narrative, especially Gideon and Deborah and Sam, um, Samson and Eli and Samuel. There's a whole narrative on them. On Mother's Day, it's going to be wonderful because we're going to talk about Hannah. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. She dedicated Samuel. So we're going to talk about dedication of Samuel. But one of the things you've got to realize is that there was a period during that time, during the judges, they're in the promised land, and it keeps, it's, a, it's a continual cycle. There's rebellion. They're, they're, the Israelites are in the land. There's rebellion. And so God sends some army to come and attack them. Then they ask for a deliverer. God sends a deliverer, and then they're delivered. There's a time of peace, and then there's rebellion. There's punishment. There's deliverance. There's rebellion. There's punishment. There's deliverance over and over and over again with these, with these judges. Now, when I think of judges, when you think of judges, a lot of, I think of, uh, I think of uh, Judge Judy. That's what I was thinking. So uh, I watched 40 hours of Judge Judy this week just to get prepared. No, it's not, ju- it's not like that kind of judge, okay? It's not somebody who wears, a, these people are not wearing black robes and are judging their, all the good, 
bad that's happening. That's not what these judges are. These are deliverers. These are people that God used for extraordinary purposes. The other thing you need to know, too, is that these people were not elected. These people did not have any, um, a lot of them didn't have any special skills. They didn't, they didn't come from a line of kings. They were just people that God chose to do and serve a purpose. The judges. You know, one of the things, too, if you ever read the book of Judges, one of the things you're going to find out is, you know, a lot of people today in today's day and age will say, man, this culture is so violent. Have you ever read Judges, is the question. The things in Judges, uh, you could do movies about all these. In fact, I hear there's a movie coming out about Samson. But you could do a, movies about all of these folks. It's so, it's so, there's so much there. There's so much backstory. There's so much history. And there's a lot of violence there, too. You know, you think of uh, that one there, Shamgar. Shamgar is like one verse about Shamgar. And the verse is that he killed 600 people with a stick, an ox good, which is a stick with a piece of iron on it. That would have made the news. Local man kills 600 people with a stick, right? You know the story of Samson. Samson kills 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey. Again, that would have made the news. Think of the story of Jephthah. Jephthah was a, he, he was raised up as a, as a leader of an army and goes out and the people are fighting against him and Jephthah makes a vow. He says, okay, God, if you deliver me, then I'm going to sacrifice the first person I see when I get back home. And he gets back home and the first person he sees is his own daughter. So he fulfills his vow. You think of Ehud. I, think, I love the story of Ehud. Ehud's a left-handed. And so he's able to sneak a sword into the king of Moab on his, on his right side because he pulls it out with his left hand. And the king of Ehud is so overweight that when he sticks a sword in, the fat closes around the whole sword. It's violent. It's, it's, it's story after story. But what you need to understand is that these are ordinary people used for extraordinary purposes. These aren't anybody special. They're people that God has elected to, to lead. They're not judging. They're leading. They're they're. They're leading armies. They're leading people. They're directing. But boy, do they make a huge, huge difference. So we get the story of Gideon. We get the story of Gideon. Many of you will know the Gideons by you, you. If you've ever been to a hotel room, you think of Gideon Bibles. That's what I think of. If you ever open a hotel room, there's a Gideon Bible based off of this Gideon in the Bible. Somebody that God's going to use for extraordinary purposes. One of the things I realized, I look back at the Gideon Bibles because I know they've been around for a while. They have now over 2 billion scriptures. The Gideons have made 2 billion Bibles. Scripture, put them in hotels all over the world. They've been around since 1908. And one, thing, one of the things you have to understand is when we read the story of Judges, we, we picked up in Judges 7, but it's the middle of the narrative. It's the middle of what's happening with Gideon. You've got to know a little backstory about Gideon to know how God's going to use him so that you know how God's going to use you as well. You see, in Judges 6.1, it's not on the screens, but the Israelites, it says the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so they called out for a deliverer. Same thing that happens over and over and over again. Okay, they're, they're, they're facing the Midianites now. Okay, they're in the promised land. The Midianites are huge. And in fact, they're so terrified of the Midianites because they keep coming in and stealing their crops, killing their people, stealing their food, all kinds of stuff. They're killing their livestock, it talks about in Judges 6, that these people are terrified. And God shows up to Gideon in the most bizarre place ever. One of the things you'll find out about Gideon is you think, man, he, he led this army and he, he only had 300 men and he did this big thing. But Gideon originally was very scared, very scared to be able to be used by God. In fact, when we, when we find Gideon, Gideon is in a wine press and he's sifting wheat. And you think, well, what, why is that bizarre? You do not sift wheat in a wine press. A wine press is a deep pit. 
And it's one of those ones where people are stomping on grapes, okay? So all the, the wine comes out. You don't sift wheat in a wine press. You sift wheat out in the field. You throw the, the wheat up, the bad stuff blows away, the wheat falls on the ground. But Gideon is so terrified that he's in the pit. He's in the pit trying to sift wheat. So he's either complete idiot, because you can't sift wheat in a wine press, or he's completely terrified. And we find out he's completely terrified. He's terrified that the Midianites are going to find him, going to steal the food, going to kill him. So what happens? Uh, Judges 6.12. It's going to come up here. Judges 6.12. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now you've got to stop there. Because there's almost a bit of sarcasm here, right? The guy's in a pit, sifting wheat. It's impossible. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Hey, mighty warrior, down there in the old pit, sifting wheat, huh? He says, The Lord's with you, mighty warrior. What you need to understand is that it's not what he was, it's what he's going to become. It's not that he was a mighty warrior because of what he's done. He, he wasn't a man of valor. It's not because of what he has, it's because of what he's going to become. It goes on to say in Judges 6.14 this, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength. Go in your strength, you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. How can I help save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Another translation is, I am the, the, the weakest in my family. So there's Gideon, sifted wheat in, in the olive press. Good for him. And he's also the weakest in his family. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. So he's down there. And God says, listen, I want, you, I want to use you. So then Gideon goes and says, okay, I, I need to get a sign from God. Is this really what you want me to say? Now, many of you know this story. It's the story of the fleece. Gideon says, hey, listen, I don't believe this is really what you want me to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to test God. I'm going to get a fleece and I'm going to put it outside. And he prays to God. And he says, hey, God, if you want me to do this, I want you to make, when I wake up, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground dry. So he wakes up, fleece is wet, the ground is dry. And then, then he says, okay, one more time. This time I'm going to put it out this night. And this time I want all the ground to be wet, but the fleece dry. The opposite. Whatever the opposite was. Wakes up. Totally true. God, God makes, uh, asks, uh, grants his request. This time the ground is wet, the fleece is dry. Understand this. This is not, this is not something we should be doing to test God. This is, a, this is doubt on, the, on Gideon's behalf. A lot of people would use that scripture to say, why don't you talk about the fleece when he's out there testing God to see if God's really speaking to him. No, because it's doubt, because he's already afraid. God's calling him for a special time, for a specific place, to do an extraordinary work. And Gideon's saying, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's right, God. You must be wrong. You must be talking about somebody else. So I need to make a sign. You need to give me a sign real clear. And God does it. Then we pick up this passage that Jamie just read. If you have your Bibles or service sheets, it's Judges 6 2. The Lord. So Gideon amassed this huge army. He said, All right, fine. Midianites, 100 some thousand people. I'm going to get as many people as possible. So he gets 32,000 people. 32,000 soldiers. And in verse 2, it says this The Lord says to Gideon, You still you have too many men. You, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands. Israel would not boast about me. My, my own strength has saved me. So he says, go back to them and tell them, those that are fearful, they can go home. What a great army, by the way. Huh? Can you imagine in America, we said, hey, we're going to go to war against another country. And he said, uh, if any of you are terrified, you could, you could sit this one out. And two-thirds of them do. I mean, you go, well, what are people signing up for? I don't even know where you found these people. Two-thirds of them say, okay, you know what? You're right. This isn't going to work. So they leave. So now he's left with 10,000. All right? 
So the Lord says to him, hey, you still got too many, Gideon. I told you I'm going to deliver you. I told you I'm going to use you. You still have too many. And he sifts them down to 300. 300. Can you imagine? I don't know what those 300 were thinking. But I bet they were going, man, I wish I drank the water a little differently. Because I would have loved to have gone home. 300 men. Then as you go through the story of Judges, and you go to the next chapter, you find out what they do. God says, go and surround the Midian army. Okay? So at night, he tells them to go at night, take jars, big jars and flames, and smash the jars in the middle of the night and wave your flames. And so they do. These 300 go around this huge army, and they start smashing pots, waving flames, and the Midianites get up all confused because it's in the middle of the night, and they kill each other. They start killing each other. Hundreds of thousands of people die. The rest of them flee into the, the desert, never to be seen again. 300, guys. If you ever look at a Gideon Bible, you'll see a symbol on that Gideon Bible. It's a, it's a clay pot with a, a jar with a flame sticking out of it. That's the idea. And God uses ordinary people for extraordinary work. That's Gideon. Now you may say, oh, that's terrific. I, if God ever speaks to me about you know, going against a big army, I'll be sure to pay attention to that. How do you apply this? When I look at Gideon, when we talk about the characteristic of Gideon, when we said, what, what stands out about Gideon? What did he do that, that's a characteristic we want to have? It's, a, it's about obedience. Because Gideon did exactly what God told him to do in the exact same way. We all want to strive for be, being obedient. But how do we do it? You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was preparing this sermon, when I was thinking about this, I always thought, you know, it would be easy to, to do what God asked you to do if you knew God was speaking to you, right? Like, if God was actually talking to you like Gideon, you would probably say, yeah, you know what, I would do that. But we think we live in a day and age where God doesn't speak to us anymore. So obedience first means this. Obedience means listening to God as he speaks to us. You know, this... This concept is tough for some people because they don't think that God really speaks to them in any way. In fact, if you've paid attention, any attention to the news, you know that just a little while ago, our vice president said that the Lord was speaking to him and somebody in the culture said, you must ha- he must have a mental illness. And a lot of people took offense to that. I took offense to that because I thought, would you say that about Gideon? That he has a mental illness? Would you say that about Noah or Joshua? Would you say that about Moses, that they hate a mental illness? Would you say that about anybody that God has ever spoken to, including me? Because I wouldn't be in ministry if God wasn't speaking to me in the first place. God has spoken to me a number of times. Is it an audible voice? No. It's one of those things, I feel a nudging. Many people would say, hey, listen, I've gotten into things where I've helped somebody out, or I've gotten into a a ministry because I really just feel like God nudging me. That's what obedience is, is listening to God as he nudges you. God has spoken to me on a number of occasions. In fact... I've told this story before, um, but many of you know that's how I met my wife. I was, a, I was a freshman in college. It was the second day of school. I didn't know anybody at school. I was at Geneva, and my wife uh, walked out on stage. She was uh, a few years older, and she was there, and I felt immediately that I was supposed to marry her. I felt that. I felt I was supposed to marry her. In fact, I told my roommate who was sitting next to me, he said, don't ever say that to anybody ever again. <laughs> I ended up meeting Deb um, a few days later. Found out she was engaged to somebody else. But every time I saw her, I felt this nudging. God, you're sp- I'm supposed to marry her. So I hired a hitman. And, uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> okay, I still lied. Uh, long story short, she 
broke off with him, we got together and we got married. I, I knew that God was speaking to me. I knew that God was calling me into ministry. I knew, some of you know that God's calling you into certain things. Those folks that went to the Dominican Republic, God was speaking to you, go to the Dominican Republic, help out. Those people that are on stage with Brad, people have called them and said, hey, listen, use your gifts, use your talents. That's God speaking to us. We just had a wonderful middle school overnighter here on Friday. Powerful, a lot of kids. Those leaders that are there, God is speaking to them. Get involved in that ministry. You've got to listen as God speaks to us. Some people would ask this. How do we discern the promptings that we receive? First, when you look at Hebrews 4, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Judges the thoughts and attitudes. John 10 says, my, my, uh, my sheep listen to my voice. The Lord's saying, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. He wouldn't say they would listen to us if he's not actually talking to us. So how do we know, how do we discern the promptings we receive quickly? Here they are. They are consistent with his word. First, you've got to realize that God is going to tell you things that are consistent with his word. I've had people in my office say, God's told me to get a divorce. I thought, really? Why would he tell you that? Well, he wants me to be happy. No. He's not telling you to get a divorce so you can be happy. Was there an affair that happened? No. Well, then he's not going to tell you something contrary to his word. He's not going to prompt you to do something contrary to his word. We also know that promptings are often confirmed with godly counsel. I know many people will get together and the, God will speak to them about something and they'll feel this prompting and they'll get together with some other godly people. That's why small groups are so important. They'll share that and they'll confirm it. Say, yeah, you know what? I think you should do that. I've had folks in my office who are thinking about going into ministry and I'll say, you know what? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. That, that's confirming from God the counsel. It's also followed with a peace of God. When promptings happen, you go, maybe I should get involved in this ministry. Maybe I should go on the DR. Maybe I should get involved in this ministry. And you have such a peace about it. That's how you know that this prompting is from God. You have a peace about it, saying, you know, he's going to take care of this whole thing. And finally, it's evident in the timing and the circumstances. There are things in life that happen. You say, you know what? I really feel like God wants me to, to, to give or do something. And then all of a sudden you have a windfall of money. You go, okay, that's the timing. That's the circumstances. That's consistent with his word. That's how we discern the promptings we receive. But obedience means first, we've got to listen to God. Some of you are going through life thinking he doesn't speak to you. And he wants to speak to you. He loves you. That's why he sent his son to die for you, to have a relationship with you. Because he wants to speak to you. You've got to listen. Secondly, we learn obedience means learning that God strengthens us in our weakness too. He strengthens us in our weakness. Do you remember, I talked about the, the judges. We're not going to talk about Samson, but you all know the story of Samson, right? Samson was a strong guy. And God, if you remember the story, he was strong and one of his strengths was in his hair and Delilah comes and they, he cuts his hair and then he becomes totally weak, right? He loses all his strength, he gets captured, they put his eyes out and the very last thing he says, God, I pray that you give me my strength back so that I can kill these people and, he, and God gives him the strength, he pushes out the walls of the temple and, and everybody dies. You've got to understand that, that God strengthens us in our weakness. Samson was weak. Gideon was weak. That's why a quote was this. I simply think that God is greater than our weakness. In fact, I think it's our weakness that reveals how great God is. When you look at Gideon, you go, that guy couldn't be used for anything. He was the weakest in his family. Samson was too strong to be used by God. God had to break him down. Gideon was timid and weak. Samson was, was brash and reckless. One is weak, becomes strong. Gideon becomes strong. Samson was strong and became weak. It's in his weakness that he grew strength. You have to understand God uses all kinds of people in life. 
He's not looking for the people that, that can, that can uh, uh, preach wonderful sermons or who are, who are good looking to go out and, and share his word or have all kinds of talents to sing that can really do these things. He's not looking for those kind of people. He's looking for the people that are humble and say, hey, listen, God, I don't really have a whole lot of strengths. I just need you to use what you have given me to be used by you. He's not looking for the strength. He's looking for the people that are humble. In fact, when we look at Hebrews, Hebrews talks about Gideon and talks about Samson. And Hebrews 11 says, whose weakness was turned to strength and who's, who became powerful in battle. Both men required a weakness to become strong. Both men required a humbleness to say, God, I really don't have the strength here to do what you're calling me to do. Paul was in the same boat. If you remember, Paul was Saul originally. And Paul went through all kinds of hardships. If you remember Saul, he's... he's He's killing people. He's out there murdering Christians. They're also making a, a movie about Paul, I'd heard. He's out there persecuting Christians. And then on the road to Damascus, he, he, gets that, he gets that vision, if you remember, and he becomes blind. And God had to use that blindness to turn him into Paul so that he can go out and preach the gospel. But understand, he was a man of power. He, he had everything at his fingertips. He was a man of strength. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that's why he says, but he says to me, my grace is sufficient. For you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that, that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight my weakness in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Gideon was in that pit, terrified. God says, Get out of the pit. I want to use you. I want to use you, an ordinary person, Gideon, for an extraordinary purpose. I just need you to be obedient to everything that I'm calling you to do. And that's why it's not only learning that God strengthens us in our weakness, but we have to learn that living for God to carry out his will. I always ask the question, or I had asked the question, why did God need 300 people to kill the Midianites? Why didn't God just wipe them out? Why didn't God just wipe them out? If he knew he was going to destroy the Midianites, why didn't he just wipe them out anyway? With a flood? Maybe a smaller flood. Maybe a fire and brimstone. Why didn't he wipe them out? Why did he need 300? Here's the answer. He didn't. What he needed was Gideon and those 300 to be obedient to exactly what God was calling him to do. He, doesn't, he, he uses people for his will. He uses people for his purpose. That's why Philippians 2.13 says, For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There have been men and women who have touched your lives, who have, been, who have told you about Christ. That's why you're here. Invited you to a church. That's why you're here. Some of you have the opportunity to invite folks to an Easter service or a Good Friday service. He puts people in your path so that you can touch, so that they can come to know him. He uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. He just wants you to be obedient. You know, one of the forgotten heroes of the faith is actually in the New Testament. It's Ananias. Ananias was a man who really was used by God. Ananias had an effect on Saul. He was the first person that Saul encountered. And I love the song that we're going to sing here as we close. It said, take my life and let it be. Ananias is a great example of take my life and let it be. It, it's, it's, Gideon was the same way. He says, listen, take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord for me, just take it. Ananias was one of those forgotten heroes of the faith because he was the one who reached out to Saul in, in Acts 9. Saul's blind. In Acts 9, we see this. We said in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house on Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man named Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him, restore his sight. Ananias didn't, didn't hear from God that Saul, who was a terrorist, had been converted. All Ananias heard was, go to Saul's house and put your hands on him. That would be terrifying. Because he knew who Saul was, this guy who was out murdering people, and now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Ananias has to go and put his hands on Saul to, for him to see again. If it wasn't for Ananias, Saul would still be blind in that house. God did use Saul, turned him into Paul to touch the world, but he first had to use Ananias to touch Paul. What you have to understand is just like Gideon, God is putting people in your path, in your life, for you to touch because he wants to to use you for his will. I was talking to a woman just a few weeks ago whose son's going through all kinds of hardships in life. Emotionally depressed, suicidal, having all kinds of identity issues. And she was talking to me. She was getting upset and emotional. And I, I said... It's been going on for years. And she said, yeah, I know. His father has given up on him. I said, have you given up on him? She goes, absolutely not. Absolutely. God put me in this place to help him. I'm going to keep encouraging. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel with him. That's what I'm going to do. That's a Saul. That's an Ananias. Another Saul. Another Ananias. That's a Gideon. Somebody who says, listen, I don't have all kinds of strength. I just, God, use me for a specific time and a specific place for a specific reason. There was a couple in my office a few weeks ago who devastated with all kinds of stress in the guy's life, and he's an alcoholic. Drinking all the time, coming home, yelling at the kids, yelling at the wife, all kinds of financial trouble. And I remember speaking with them and talking with them, and I talked with the wife. I said, are you giving up on this marriage? She goes, absolutely not. God's given me, God's put me in this position to help him. It's hard. I don't have all the strength, but I know God's going to use me in a mighty, mighty way. That's a Gideon. Somebody's saying, I don't, I, don't have all the, I don't have all the gifts. I, I'm weak. I don't have the abilities. But God's going to use me for a specific time and a specific place. Some of you just want to fade in the background and say, you know what? God's never going to use me. And he's saying to you right now, get out of that pit. Get out of that pit. Gideon, get out. Because I want to use you in more ways than you'll ever imagine. But you've got to get out of the pit first. You've got to stop hiding. You've got to stop being fearful. Get out of the pit, Gideon. I say to you, you got to get out of the pit. I, one of my good friends had knew for a long time, his mother was an atheist, always been an atheist. He said, I never gave up on her. I witnessed her all the time. And it was on her deathbed that finally he went and talked to her. And she, he said, Lord, the Lord loves you, wants to have a relationship with you. You just got to give your life over to him. You got to confess your sin and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And he told her that. And on her deathbed, she gave her life to Christ. That's a Gideon. A Gideon who says, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to use and be used by God in a mighty, mighty way. I'm telling you right now, God wants you to use you. You got to get out of that pit. Get out of the pit. Let God use you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. I thank you that you use people like Gideon, that you use people like us. Lord, some of us are afraid, terrified to be ever come out because we're, we feel like people are going to find out about our weakness or our insecurities. Lord, help us to get out of that pit. Use us mightily, Lord. Help us to live for you. Help us to realize that in our, in our weakness, you give us strength. And Lord, help us to be obedient to what you called us to. Lord, take our lives and let them be. That's our prayer here today. And I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?